0: Please be seated. The sermon text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 2, and this can be found in the few Bible pages 807 and 808. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. For what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called Nazarene. The word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Father, we pray uh, in amazement that you have uh, been thinking so uh, long and so deeply about your son and his ministry, as Matthew shows us here, that uh, you literally structured and organized and planned the history of Israel so that it would really tell the story of your son. And we know that as we come under this text this morning, uh, that you're not just giving us a Bible lesson or or a history lesson, that you're addressing us about our lives and about Jesus as the king of our lives, not other people's lives. And so we pray now for the ministry of your spirit, that that true kingship of Christ would be made known to those already as people strengthened and Fed and encouraged and rejoicing over that fact and those who are not yet his. And we pray that you might have mercy to open their eyes and grant them new life in Christ on this day. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Um, that's a lot of as a lot of real estate that Nathan uh, led us through. And uh, we've been away from Matthew since uh, Christmas morning and we're coming back now after after break. And um, let me just remind you. Uh, What I uh, explained when we started this series, and that is that for the first four chapters, when Matthew begins his gospel, uh, what he does is he leads us through a series of uh, introductions of Jesus, a series of entrances that Jesus makes. And in those entrances, uh, through those first four chapters, uh, Matthew is really setting up for us some key themes and aspects of Jesus's identity that he is going to show us, play out over the rest of his ministry over and over again. And chapter 2, the balance of chapter 2, is certainly one of those places. Now, if it felt, uh, I wonder how you felt as Nathan was reading it. Did it feel uh, very dense and thick and uh, a little bit complicated? Uh, I wonder if it did. Um, It is a fairly dense thicket. Um, But... But when you pull back and you look at the forest, and that's why I had Nathan read the whole chapter. When you pull back and you look at the forest, it's actually pretty simple. Uh, Matthew has one uh, very massive uh, claim that he's making for Jesus, but it's very simple. And it's this, it's that Jesus is the king that God has put literally at the center of everything. And we're going to look at three aspects of Jesus's kingship this morning. What it means that he's the king at the center of history. That's what Matthew's telling us. And also that Jesus is the king at the center of the Bible. The Bible is his story just as much as history is his story. And then finally, that Jesus is the king that God has placed at the center of our own lives. And uh, we're going to see that uh, I trust as God uh, opens his word to us that our lives are Christ's story as well. So let's look first at. Uh, how Jesus Christ, Matthew shows us that Jesus Christ is the king at the center of history. And what do I mean when I say that? What I mean is that literally what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus Christ is the point of history. That history is his story, literally. And there's really really two ways that Matthew shows that to us uh, through this chapter. And it has one comes from uh, one comes from the wise men, and the other one comes from Herod and those who advise Herod. It's easy for us to miss, but you notice when Herod, when the wise men arrive in Jerusalem in verse two, they uh, they arrive asking for the quote king of the Jews. Do you notice that? And then in verse four, after Herod is terrified by the news that perhaps the king of the Jews has. Uh, been born, he uh, summons uh, the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he wants to know where the Christ is to be born. And those are two ways of saying exactly the same thing. A Christ is simply the Greek way to say anointed, which is what the Hebrew word Messiah means literally, and both those words refer to the promised king whom God would give to his people Israel. Now, that much we can get. I think if you've been uh, in our church for a while, you probably already know that. But for Matthew, what's easy for us to miss is that that tip of the literal meaning of the king of the Jews and Christ or the anointed one of God, that that those literal meanings sit on top of a massive iceberg of significance for any Jew. Because what those terms signify in the Old Testament, and Matthew's very careful here, what they signify is not just the king of Israel and not just the king of the Jews, but any student of the Old Testament knows that what God has promised is that David's throne would actually be the throne under which not just Israel, but all the nations of the earth would be gathered. David's heir, the king of the Jews, the Messiah, would be the king of the earth. He'd be the kings of the kings of the earth. He'd be a king greater than David. The entire earth would be his realm. Matthew's very careful to show us. Now, it's mysterious, but very careful to invoke that vision here. And that's why Herod is so terrified. Now, of course, Matthew also knows and any of his readers who were at least initially uh, probably predominantly Jewish. That's why he that's why he spent so much time in uh, the opening chapter showing us the Old Testament background uh, to Jesus's ministry. Uh, Any student of the Old Testament would know that the king he is talking about is not just David's heir, but also ultimately the seed of the woman from Genesis 315. So why don't you turn uh, there with me? I know we've talked about uh, we've talked about Genesis 3:15 many times, and uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, it really is a seminal promise in the Bible uh, that that sets forth uh, what's going to happen over the course of redemptive history. And I know we've talked about different aspects of this promise uh, before previously, but it, it bears repeating this morning because it helps us see. Uh, just how huge what Matthew's saying about Jesus actually is. Look at uh, Genesis 3, verse 15, which is page 3 uh, in the Pew Bible. Uh, this is a God, uh, in the course of his curse on the serpent, after the fall of Adam and Eve, announcing uh, his promise to bring forth a seed of the woman, uh, an, uh, literally it's seed, the ESV translates offspring, of the woman who will one day crush Uh, the, the head of the serpent and who himself will be wounded in the process. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this future seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, hitting him, destroying him. That's a fatal wound on the head. And you shall bruise his heel. And why do I take you there? I take you there because by all rights when Adam and Eve sin, that should be the end of human history. There's no reason that history should continue after that point. When Adam and Eve sin, they forfeit the future. And so when God comes in immediately after their fall and their rebellion against them, and He promises the emergence of this seed at some point in the future, He doesn't specify when, but from the very sinner's who rebelled against him, is going to come a seed and that that seed is going to defeat and overthrow and reverse everything that the serpent thought he was accomplishing. What God is doing is he's not simply saying what's going to happen in history. He's promising that there will be a history. And he's saying that the sole reason that this history is going to exist, the only reason that there is history after the fall of Adam and Eve is so that this seed of the woman can emerge in the fullness of time and his triumph can have its full extent. It's an amazing vision of who this seed of the woman is. And Matthew is very clearly identifying Jesus as that seed because he is the occupant of Of David's throne. He is the heir of David's throne. And in the Old Testament. David's heir was that expected seed. And Jesus is going to say later on in Matthew 24. He's going to say. uh, This gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world. As a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. In other words, it's not until the promised seed, who is Jesus himself, has the full fruit of his victory, that history will come to an end. And Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the king that God has put in the center of history. It's a massive claim. And this is one of those places where Christianity has a very distinctive edge, particularly in our day. You know, a lot of you, how many of you took high school English? How many of you are destined to take high school English? Some of you. How many of you have read Macbeth? How many of you were forced to sit through it? Maybe you didn't read it, but you're forced to listen to teachers talk about it. Okay, and you know in Macbeth, uh, one of the most famous lines of Macbeth is near the end of the play after Macbeth finds out that his queen has died, and he says, All right, he says, Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. See, Macbeth, at the end of Macbeth, says, You know what? History's pointless. It's a tale told by an idiot. It's full of sound and fury, a lot of noise, a lot of action, but in the end, it doesn't mean anything. There are a lot of people today who think that way about history. They may not use Macbeth's language, but they fundamentally believe that history is unwritten, that it's not going in a direction, that it's not linear, that it's not coherent. And, and one, of the, one of the implications of what Matthew is telling us about who Jesus is is that the Christian view of history is very different from that. You might have come in and you might have... you might actually believe what Macbeth believes, that life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, but in the end, meaning nothing. And I want you to see how different the Christian view of history actually is. Because we believe that history does have a direction. History does have a purpose. History is coherent. And history has an author, and that author is not man, it's God. I used to be somebody who uh, would have agreed with what Macbeth says, and I know people today who still uh, believe that. My parents believe that. My sister believes that. But you know what's interesting about it when you talk to people about it? No one really consistently believes that. Uh, You might say that you're married to it, but if anything, it's an open marriage. It's not consistent. Nobody can afford to live that way as though life didn't have meaning. You you can't get up in the morning if life doesn't have meaning. If you believe that you came from nothing and if you believe that life is leading nowhere, then the only possible implication about what's between the beginning and the end is that that means nothing. But you don't live that way because when somebody offends you, You stand up and say, I have rights. You actually say, when you look at the Holocaust, whether in Nazi Germany or in the wake of Roe v. Wade, you stand up and you say, that's wrong. But if you came from nothing and you're headed to nothing, you have no objective basis for making that assertion. So you don't really live that way. And Christianity is the news That God has acted in history, in Jesus Christ, in order to remedy what's wrong with history. You see, man looks for hope within the four corners of history and tries to build utopias. And we try to use legislation to do it. Or we look to particular presidential candidates, pseudo messiahs to do it. And you know what? Over and over and over again, the hope will never come from within history. It must come into history by God's action, which is exactly what Matthew is announcing has happened in Jesus Christ. And that same is true today, unless something is objectively wrong, it can't be made objectively right. And Matthew is celebrating that Jesus is the king whom God has sent into history to make it right. But Matthew also shows us that Jesus is not only the king of history, he's uh, the king of the Bible. History is his story and the Bible is his story. Story. He's the center of the Bible. And what I mean by that is that over and over over again, did you notice how Matthew just keeps uh, emphasizing that certain aspects of, of Jesus' early life uh, took place in order to fulfill something that was said in the Old Testament? Did you see that? Matthew's really big on this. Uh, and most of his fulfillment formulas uh, happen in chapter 2. And what, what Matthew's showing us is that God has shaped, literally, shaped the flow and structure of Israel's history in particular in such a way that it would, that it would provide a, a kind of a teaching platform to clarify Jesus' ministry and what he was about when he finally came. Now, often we will look at Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. The very common way of thinking about Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament is to to look at, at fulfillment formulas like Matthew has listed for us in Matthew 2 and say, oh, the reason, the reason that Jesus uh, left Egypt was because Israel had left Egypt in the Exodus. The reason that the wise men came and brought gifts to Jesus was because Uh, When Solomon was king, uh, the queen of Sheba and the kings of the earth came and they brought gold and frankincense and spices to Solomon. And Matthew's perspective is exactly the opposite. Matthew's perspective is that the reason there was an exodus is because Jesus one day would come and would lead the true exodus. And we need the deliverance by God's power through the death of the firstborn in order to understand what God was going to do on the cross. And so what Matthew does is he literally leads us through this radical reading of the Old Testament and shows us how Jesus is the fulfillment of really all uh, that the Bible has uh, described for us. And there are four particular ways he does it. I've already kind of previewed a couple of them. But let's, let's start back at the beginning. I got carried away. It's a very... Uh, it, it, it is a life-changing way of looking at the Bible. It is a way of looking at the Bible that, that just shows us how jealous, in a holy, beautiful way, God has always been... For the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. So let's look first at how Jesus, Matthew, shows us that Jesus is the true king of God's people. He's greater than Solomon. You say, well, where's that in the passage? Solomon's not mentioned. Well, he's not mentioned by name, but he is by pattern. Um. What what Matthew is wanting to show us is that Jesus is David's greatest son. Solomon was the first heir, right? You know from your Old Testament uh, reading that Solomon was David's first son, the first one to whom uh, David's throne was transferred. And it's very interesting when you read the way Solomon's uh, reign began. God just blessed him so mightily. He was the temple builder, right? And God blessed him with wisdom and God blessed him with riches and just lavish so much blessing on him. And there's there's a story that's recorded both in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles 9 when the queen of sheba who is a gentile probably from the southern southwestern tip of arabia came to visit Solomon. And she was amazed. His reputation, God had blessed him so much, his reputation had spread through all the surrounding nations. And so the nations are drawn to this heir of David. And when the queen of Sheba comes, she's so amazed by the evidence of God's blessing on this heir of David, that she brings him gold and she brings him spices. And then at the end of the chapter, you have this story where not only the queen of Sheba, but other kings of the earth come and they, they basically open up their treasuries to uh, Solomon. Well, that's exactly what the wise men did. They come from far away. And they open up their treasuries for David's heir. Except that Jesus is greater than Solomon in a couple of ways. Number one, Solomon was honored by the nations when he was an adult and it was obvious that he was the king. But more importantly, Jesus' superiority to Solomon is so much greater Because unlike Solomon, Matthew's going to show us that Jesus is the heir of David who doesn't fail. Because Solomon started well and finished very poorly. It's hard to know whether Solomon was actually regenerate. Now that's an amazing fact. Solomon's not commended for his faith by the end of his life. And Matthew is telling us about an heir of David in Jesus Christ who is going to be faithful to the end. Matthew isn't, isn't indulging in a kind of biblical nostalgia here where he's saying, oh, Jesus has come to, to bring back the glory days of King Solomon because you know what? And those, those days didn't end gloriously. Uh, Jesus is not the, the new Solomon. What Matthew is saying is that Jesus is the true Solomon. Everything that Solomon should have been, but failed to be, Jesus fulfills. Solomon left that vision of a faithful heir of David empty. And Jesus comes to fill it up. Solomon and his glory were training wheels for the one who would come. Matthew also shows us, secondly, that Jesus is The true, not just the true king of God's people, he's the true deliverer of God's people. He's greater even than Moses. Did you notice, and this is very intricate, but did you notice all the ways in which uh, there are parallels, very explicit parallels, uh, in verses 13 through 16 between um, Jesus' experience and Moses' experience? Uh, Moses was hunted down along with the other uh, Jewish, Israelite uh, young boys was hunted down by Pharaoh in the same way that Herod hunts down uh, Israel's uh, children. That, that like Moses, Jesus was called to go into Egypt and called with Israel to lead Israel out of Egypt. Very uh, clear parallels with Moses' experience. But again, for Matthew, it won't do to understand Jesus as the new Moses. That's not what Matthew is doing. He's saying, don't you understand? This Jesus, this King who comes in this way, is actually not the new Moses. He's the true Moses. He's the deliverer that Moses was the training wheels to prepare us for. He's the deliverer, uh, not in a new exodus, but in the true exodus that actually who actually leads his people, unlike Moses, who got just right to the edge of the promised land and couldn't lead the people in. And even then, it was temporary. He couldn't keep them in the promised land, right? Ultimately, they were exiled. But Jesus is the true deliverer of God's people, Matthew is showing us, who leads his people out with power in a true exodus and secures them forever in their inheritance from God. But more than that, Jesus is not just the true king and the true deliverer. He's also the true people of God. He's really the true Israel. Look at verse 15. This is the verse that often puzzles people the most in a Matthew 2. Uh, when, when Matthew's describing uh, how Joseph and Mary and Jesus remained in Egypt until Herod's death, um, and then they left Egypt. He says he sums it up this way. He says, "This their return, their departure from Egypt, uh, back to Israel. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son." And if you look at your little cross references in your Bible, you're going to see that that's a reference. He's quoting uh, Hosea 11:1. But if you go and you turn to Hosea 11:1, what you're going to find out is that what Hosea is talking about is Israel. God is describing the Exodus. And that's because, and, and he's referring to Israel as his son. And that's because if you look back at Exodus, that's how God describes Israel, my son. And what Matthew is saying is something very remarkable. Think about it. Who was Israel? Israel was the covenant people of God, the seed of Abraham, right? Going back to Genesis 12, it was the seed of Abraham through whom... God promised that he was going to bless all the families of the earth. And now what what Matthew's introducing to us is is that Jesus, everything that Israel was supposed to be, everything that God called Israel to be, but failed to be, just like Solomon, just like Moses, Jesus fulfills. What Israel left empty, Jesus fills in. So the people of God in Jesus are shrunk down, if you will, to a single Israelite who is true in the person of Jesus. A righteous remnant. You know, you read the prophets over and over again. The Lord talks about this remnant, this remnant over and over again. And what Matthew is showing us is that in uh, Jesus, that righteous remnant, has shrunk down to one, a single Israelite. And Matthew's point is not that Jesus is the new Israel, but that Jesus is the true Israel. The, the man, the human, if you will, in covenant with God, faithful. The seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Israel was training wheels for Jesus Christ's superior. And then, in the end, uh, verses 17 and 18, um, Matthew quotes when he talks about Herod's hunting down of the children and the killing of the children around Bethlehem. He says, "Then was verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, and this is uh, Jeremiah 31:15. A voice was heard in Ramah." Weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. I know that sounds strange. And if you look at commentators on Matthew, uh, they all think it's strange. The smartest guys uh, that I've read all think that's very strange. And they have a lot of difficulty unwinding it. I don't want to get lost in those trees. I want to look at the forest. Uh, what, what Matthew's describing is Grief. And he's using a Jeremiah 31 to describe it. He's describing grief by Rachel over the exile, which happened in basically the 6th century B.C. But Rachel had been dead for, oh my goodness, centuries by then. And the reason Rachel's weeping is because Rachel doesn't know what God has planned. Rachel thinks when she sees the exile, when she sees Uh, figuratively. Rachel thinks when she sees the people of God being taken out of the land that the covenant is over. And Matthew is saying, but she was wrong, right? And Matthew is saying that Jesus is the one who has come to restore God's people from their exile. And he ultimately does it by being exiled himself on the cross. Because what did it mean to be exiled? It meant to be under God's judgment and thrown out of the land. And Jesus bore the curse of God's wrath for the unfaithfulness of his people. And on the cross literally was exiled outside the camp, outside the gate. So Jesus is shown to us by Matthew as this massive king who, about him, whether we realize it or not, when we were looking at the Old Testament, the entire story is training wheels, For the appearance of Jesus. And that leads to a very important application point. Just one. If this is the place that God gives to Jesus in the Bible. Doesn't that say something about the prominent place. That God's word should have in our lives. If the entire story of the scriptures. Is preparation for Jesus Christ is the is the marking out of this awesome silhouette of a king. Then, friends, how could we push that to the periphery of our lives? How could we not make the scriptures that are full of Jesus by God's design not the central part of our lives and our great study in life? You see, it's hard to imagine, I think, for Matthew, I think it would be very hard to imagine how somebody could simultaneously keep the Bible at the periphery of their lives and claim to have Jesus in the center of it. I think that would feel for Matthew like that didn't fit. And all of us need to address that gap. Because the Father thinks very highly of the Son and has put Him in the center of the Bible as the King of the Bible. Finally, let's look at how our lives are uh, Jesus' story. He's the king at the center of our lives. Matthew isn't uh, just giving us a Bible lesson and he isn't just giving us a history lesson. He's addressing us about our lives. He's not just trying to inform our, or build out our biblical knowledge. That's not an end in itself. He's not trying to just build out our historical and worldview knowledge. That's not an end in itself. Both of those which he is doing in this chapter are tools For a much greater purpose, and that is to address every one of his readers with the reality of Jesus' kingship over their lives. And I say that to Christians as well as to non-Christians. You see, because Jesus is the king that God has put in the center of every human being's life, whether they realize it or not. Jesus isn't elected as king. God doesn't hold a primary ch- a church worship s- service or an evangelistic uh, sharing of the gospel is not a plebiscite it's not an opportunity to vote for Jesus He's already king You see Jesus because of what God has done in history through him in his life of fulfilling everything that we had left undone that we owed to God because we are God's creatures and because of His willing bearing of His holy life all the way to the cross so that He could give a sacrifice sufficient in exchange for our failed lives and failed disobedience to God. Because of that work, Jesus is honored by the Father as the standard by which every human being is measured, whether they know it or not. Jesus is the gold standard by which God evaluates everybody. If we are for Him, in repentance and faith, in submitting to Him as Lord and embracing Him as our Savior, then all of His achievements in His life and death and resurrection will be for us. If we are against Him, in unbelief and unrepentance, then all of His achievements of both perfect obedience to God's law and His curse-bearing death on the cross and the certification of His resurrection, that all these things are what meet with God's approval, then all of those achievements will be against us. He is the gold standard. That is the stark fact that Matthew is pressing in for all of us to face. And it's not optional. But why in the world, why in the world would you entrust yourself to Jesus? Why in the world would you, as a 21st century person, give your life to Jesus, either for the first time or the 10 millionth time? And I think the answer is found in the very last Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is said to fulfill by Matthew. Matthew. You notice I left out verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And you go, that's supposed to change my life, Mike? Get a grip! It will has the power to do it when we understand what it means. Now, you notice when Matthew quotes that, it's a little different from the other Old Testament quotes that he makes. He, number one, he, all the others referred to single prophecies or single prophets. Here he says it's spoken by the prophets. So he's talking about a theme or something that's covered by multiple prophets. And he says it's spoken by the prophets, not written. Now, this is interesting because you will search high and low if you go. There's a problem here. Because if you go and you go, go home this afternoon and you look in the Old Testament for where it is said, he shall be called a Nazarene, you won't find it. Because there is no place in the Old Testament where it says that verbatim and specifically. So what's Matthew doing? What Matthew is doing is he's really summarizing a theme that cuts across all the prophets. What is, what is that theme? Well, for Matthew, the fact that Nazareth is invisible, that it's absent, and that it's totally missing from the Old Testament doesn't undermine his point. It's actually his whole argument. This is really important. When I was explaining this point to Maria, she said, Now, wait a second, I'm confused here, because what about the Nazarites in the Old Testament? It's a totally different word. In the Old Testament, in the 39 books of the Old Testament, roughly 602,000 words. Not once is Nazareth mentioned. Not once is a Nazarene mentioned. It is totally absent from the Old Testament. And Matthew knows that, and that's exactly why he builds his point here. What he is saying is something that his readers, his original audience, would have understood instantly. And you can see it throughout the Gospels. See, by the in Matthew's day, Nazareth was this little teeny village on the very outer edge of nowhere. In Galilee, the part of Israel with the most checkered past. It was Nazareth was a little insignificant place that didn't matter, that people had written off in a part of Israel that was totally written off for really for good reasons, because it was so full of theological compromise. What Darren described for us in the last two weeks from First Kings is all about the unfaithfulness in the history of the northern kingdom. And Nazareth was in what would today or what we would think of as the northern kingdom. And so what Matthew is saying is that to be called a Nazarene is an insult. It's a dismissive kind of comment. And Jesus is said by Matthew to be brought to Nazareth with Joseph and Mary so that he might be dismissed. So that he might always be called by others, one who didn't matter one who associated with what is weak and insignificant and powerless. He's a person to be written off from a place that is written off. And we know that's true because in John chapter 1, you remember when Philip just bursts in on Nathanael, who was from Cana, just a few miles away. Uh, from Nazareth, when Philip bursts in with all this good news, hey, we found the Messiah, the one whom the law and Moses, who Moses and the prophets wrote about. And Nathaniel says, well, who is it? And Philip says, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember Nathaniel's sarcasm? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is not a guy who lives in Manhattan saying that. This is a guy from Cana. How low must Nazareth have been? Matthew's not disagreeing with Nathanael's assessment, what he's, or understanding. See, Nathanael says that the Messiah can't come from Nazareth. The Messiah is the glorious one. He's going to be king in, in Jerusalem. He can't come from the outskirts. And Matthew's not disagreeing with Nathanael's understanding of the Old Testament. He's trying to build it out. He's saying there's another theme in the Old Testament, across all the prophets. And it's that, that the promised Messiah would not only be glorious, but that His path to His exaltation would be through humiliation. It would be through being dismissed. It would be through being overlooked. It would be by being the king, no one would recognize. That's part of His mission, is that the people to whom He came would not recognize Him. He would not receive from the earth and from the men of the earth, and even from the covenant people, the honor that was his due. Why? That was precisely why he came. To break into history, to fix what's wrong with history, what's wrong in the hearts of men. Now, why would Jesus go through that? I mean, ultimately, ultimately, he's, the, he's called a Nazarene, and, and that's probably the best thing. He's called over the course of his ministry and ultimately it was totally appropriate that his life and we're going to see it in Matthew's gospel that his life would begin in a lowly place because the whole direction of his life was toward an even lower place the cross where he was ultimately willing to give himself to be called something much worse than a Nazarene to be called the very embodiment of sin itself not by men who spat upon him and insulted him, but ultimately by his father who turned his face away from him. You see, this is a key thing that Matthew is going to emphasize again and again and again. The kind of king who brings the kingdom of God, the kind of king that Jesus is, looks to our eyes like a hidden king. It's ironic. It calls for faith. You know, you say, why? Why would he submit himself to circumstances where his strength and his glory look to be so hidden? You know, that's a natural question for us to ask. You say, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, come on. If he's really the king of the universe, why does he put himself in a small place? And why is he willing to be obscure? And why is he willing to tolerate being dismissed all his life and then ultimately, most dramatically on the cross? How could that be God? That seems to be cutting against the grain of what it means to be God. And Matthew's whole point, friends, this is one of the most wonderful, amazing, precious things about the gospel. Matthew's point is that that actually is showing not less of God, but more of God. You know, we think that when Jesus took on human flesh and that when Jesus went to the cross and suffered, that that that's less, he's showing us less of God. But the point of the Christian gospel is, no, that's not, that's not God diminished. That's God expressed more maximally and clearly than he ever has been in the history of the universe. If you want to know who God is, you go to the cross. That's why Paul says in Romans, that's where you learn the righteousness of God. And that's where you learn the love of God. God was never more clearly displayed than he was when Jesus was being crucified on that cross. That's why Jesus was willing to be called a Nazarene. You know, if you go back and you look this afternoon, and you look in your concordance, you look in your Bible, and you say, okay, where are all the places in the New Testament where Jesus was called a Nazarene or where He's identified as being from Nazareth. You'll find there's a great variety. The disciples identify in that way. Uh, demons even identify him as Jesus from Nazareth. Pilate puts a sign on the cross. It says Jesus the Nazarene. And even the angel in Mark chapter 16. At the empty tomb identifies Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. But you know what's interesting? There's only one place. Where Jesus identifies himself. As a Nazarene or being from Nazareth. When Paul is giving his testimony before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 22 and verse 8, he says that the great, there was a great light and the voice addressed him. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the answer came back, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, do you know what's powerful about that? What's powerful about that is that the one time we hear Jesus identify himself by what would have been an earthly insult is when he is actually at the peak of his glory. You see, Jesus is willing in his glory when he appears to Saul on the road to Damascus to identify himself as the one who was the cast off. It's because his humiliation on the earth as our substitute, bearing everything that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to. It's because of it, it's his humiliation on the earth that is the grounds for his exaltation in heaven. And that's why the angels in Revelation 5 say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Now you see, what does this have to do with you and me? What it has to do with you and me is this. God knows and God intends that that fact of Jesus, a king who has both been humiliated in our place and exalted for his triumph and our provision. God knows that that's going to be simultaneously a stumbling block for every person who ever hears it and also the greatest comfort that there could ever be. It's a stumbling block because God is calling every one of us to humble ourselves before a king who went even lower than we in order to rescue us. Because when we look at Jesus on the cross, what God means us to see is what we deserve. But at the same time, for Jesus to be a Nazarene is the sweetest, greatest comfort there could possibly be God Himself in the Son was willing to be identified with the weak, with the insignificant, with the dismissed, with the powerless, with the insulted, with the overlooked, with the those who fail to register on any measure. And he was willing to identify with them so closely that even in his glory he holds fast. To that identification as a badge of his honor and the assurance of his mercy and the availability of his grace. And he says, from the heart of his glory, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And he calls us to him in repentance and faith, in kindness. When he appeals to you, friend, and he says, repent of your sins, that's his kindness that is appealing to you. Do you understand that that when God calls us to repent, when Jesus summons us to repentance, what He's saying is, I know better than you what your sins are. I know better than you what their consequences are. Better than you, I know their horror because I became them willingly on the cross. And so when I call you away from them, You can trust that I have your good, your best interests in mind. And when I call you to trust me in faith and to pour your entire life into my hands... You can know that I'm trustworthy. How can you know that I'm trustworthy? Because I went to the very end pouring my life out for you. Every moment of my life I was called a Nazarene. I was overlooked and dismissed. And why did I do that? I did that so that I might provide for you a salvation that would be stable. A commitment to you unlike any other in your life that you will ever come across. A faithfulness like you can never produce for me or for anyone else and that no one else can give you, I'm the exclusive provider of that and you can know that because I was called a Nazarene for you. He's the king of history. He's the king at the center of the Bible. And friends, he's right there. God has put him right there in the center of your life and mine. Welcome Him. Let's pray. Father, glorify Your Son in us for His glory and for our good and Your joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please
0: stand.